There is so much uh, tonight that is uh, immutable that uh, we can count on to be unchanging. It doesn't matter uh, what does change. There are some things that uh, do not vary. They keep to their track of certainty. We know that they are absolute. Sometimes they are profound. We do not understand them, but we know that they do work. We can depend upon their consistency. We are assured that uh, the way that they have performed before, they will continue to perform. And on such profound things relative to spiritual matters, it is well sometimes that we dwell and uh, that we think, that uh, we not grow uh, nonchalant about them, but these facts, inasmuch as they are true, that uh, we, we keep them in mind. And with that in mind, tonight I'm going to preach uh, a message which may not apply to anyone in this building, and yet it may. If it did not apply to one single soul, it is well that we be appraised of uh, its uh, certainty and that we be stimulated over the fact that uh, this particular occurrence uh, will come about. Our subject this afternoon is, I saw the dead. I saw the dead. We would read tonight our text in Revelation chapter 20. Verses 12 and 13. Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 13. I saw the dead. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged according, they were judged every man according to their works. The first statement of verse 12 is our subject, and I saw the dead. Yesterday afternoon, the time was about 5.30. I had finished uh, a funeral address and stepped down from the uh, uh, podium uh, to take my place at the head of the casket. I looked for the first time into the face of a total stranger to myself. I had not had the privilege of meeting the deceased. He lay in state in the casket. The friends who did know him began to file by to look into his face, to pay their last respects, to remember him in some part of the life as they had once known him. And as I looked at him, uh, it was with some measure of curiosity, I judged him as to uh, his age and whatnot already. But uh, I 
looked upon his features, observed his uh, dress and what not. And yet it was with a note and a feeling of sensitivity. Uh, all of my life I have been sensitive to some particular situations. Not as sensitive, perhaps, as I should be, but I never hope that the time comes when I can approach a funeral service or any time of human trouble or bereavement with a callous attitude and that it makes no personal difference to me. After a funeral that involves people that I pastor, people that I know, there is something about it that leaves me wrung out. If it is something that has built up over a period of time, the people have been approaching death, have had their stay in the hospital, you've been expecting it, you have felt the, uh, the weight of the matter, the gauntlet of human emotions that have swept through the family circle has washed across the threshold of your own heart. Then, of course, there are several days after that that uh, I still feel the effects of, uh, of that. I've had a chance to get used to dying and to used to death. I was exposed to it at a young age. I saw it in, uh, when I was four years old in the face of my dad. Someone lifted me up and where I could peer over the rim, the edge of the casket, I looked into his face. Uh, then at age 13, I uh, passed by the casket of my mother, and then there have been other situations. But uh, before that, before my mother died, I remember one cold winter night, there was the sound of a log truck that passed our way, our house. Then the log truck stopped. There was the sound of shouting, men's voices down the road just away. We went out on the porch and looked down the road, just a matter of about a uh, hundred yards, somewhere between fifty and a hundred yards. We could see that the truck had stopped. I went down to see what was happening. In the eerie red light of the uh, tail light of this log truck, I looked into the face of a dead man. He suddenly had fallen out of the chain box. Uh, the men were riding with him. They were coming in from the woods. It was black dark. They had been in the woods since the break of day, and now they were on their way back home. Suddenly this man had pitched headlong out of the chain box, and the big dual wheels had run squarely oblong across his body. The people had called to the driver, and the truck had backed up, and there in the light of the tail light, dim and uncertain, the uh, face of the man was seen. There was the red stubble of beard, uh, salted with white. There was the tarred face of a working man who had worked hard all day long, evidently had been struck by a heart attack on his way back to the little small house that he and his family occupied. And after that, of course, there were various other things. I lived in a place where there was, it was known for its violence. I've seen men cut down with knives before my eyes. 
I've helped hold them down on a crude uh, table in a little small town doctor's office. And without anesthetic, I've seen the doctor take his knife and, or his uh, needle and sew up the great big gaping wounds that uh, was inflicted with knives. I've seen blood squirt out of a little small blue hole over the left side of a man's chest and keep squirting until he died. I've seen men smashed in accidents and helped one time, age 16, raise a door that weighed two tons. The man underneath it, uh, his head was no thicker than that when we got the door up. He never knew what uh, hit him. I've seen and witnessed all of that. I've known the loneliness of death watches past twelve and one and two, and then it's some hour, finally the last breath comes, and there is the crying of people who cared. They knew it was coming, but sometime you're never, uh, never prepared. Yet, in spite of my association with it, death brings with it a mystery, brings with it a dread. It brings a certain shock that we're never quite used to, never quite used to. My text says tonight of one man who saw the dead of the ages come and stand before God. It was not one or a two, but all of those that had ever lived, that had ever drawn the breath of life upon this planet, that had not known God and never made their calling and election sure, he saw them. He saw the dead of the ages. That was a lot of dead people. Of course, they stood and they were alive, apparently, but they had passed through the trauma of dying. And they were there. They stood in in that place. Book and Wall was a, a factory of death. It was a science of extermination. They learned how to stack the dead in such a way and rip them up like cardwood so that they could stack them as high as a house and they would not fall down. They learned how to handle dead people and so that... Uh, that they would be the less bother. This they did know. And uh, but this man John, he saw more people than Buckenwall ever processed. He saw the dead of the ages, the victims of the flood. He saw the people that had been eradicated from the earth in various purges of, of wicked kings. They were all there. He he saw them stand before the Lord. This is a bit of prophecy. Prophecy is said, history written in advance, and this is exactly what it was. With prophetical clairvoyance, this man looked upon something that is yet to be. That was projected upon the giant screen of tomorrow. This great happening that will take place. I may be preaching to somebody tonight that uh, will be able to correct me on some statements that I will make tonight, because it could be that I preach tonight to some people who will be in this gathering that John saw when he said, I saw the dead. There he stood, and there they stood, and it was something that seemed to have been 
actually enacted. He looked upon it as it was to be. And God told John, said, write it in a book. And I want you to give it to the churches. I want the churches to tell other people about it. And that's the reason that I'm here tonight. I am doing what the God told John to do. And uh, I'm carrying out those, uh, those particular edicts. And I hope tonight that uh, they find a lodging here. That the great, profound, immutable, inescapable facts of divine knowledge and rectification that they knock soundly upon the door of our hearts tonight. There are some things you don't escape. There are some things you face. There are some things that you meet, and uh, you have no other choice. I saw the dead. And John saw the dead in this one courtroom of heaven. They were there. Civil law lays no claim upon a dead man. You can escape your taxes. You can escape your debts. You can get away from them. You don't have to pay income taxes if you'll just die. And uh, they will not levy them upon you. Civil law does not uh, try to extract any, uh, any debt there. But it uh, is not so, friend, with God's law. Civil law is one thing and God's law is another thing. God's law reaches on past death. It lays its claim in eternity. It holds a man accountable for every act and deed that was performed in time. These people had not only died physically, they had died spiritually too. There was a light that went out in their soul. There was something that was never kindled. There was a breath of hope that they never breathed. There was a position and there was a step in God that they never took. There was a life that they never lived. They were, as Paul said, dead in their trespasses and in their sin. These people had refused salvation. They had been dead as they lived. There was no response to God's call upon their life. I remember talking to Gaylord Ross relative to uh, his feeling. I often wondered how a person would feel that was uh, paralyzed. And uh, why couldn't you make your legs move? Why couldn't you make your arms move? And I said, Gay, uh, how did it feel when you realized that you were paralyzed? And when you tried to make your legs move, uh, well, how, how did you feel about it? Well, he said, just there in the bed, and, and I will to move my legs. And, and he said, it seemed to me that when I... I willed to move them, and I decided to move them, that um, uh, they would move. And he said, it just, uh, it would seem they would. But he said, of course, looking there, you could see that nothing happened. He said, it was the strangest situation to decide to do something, and then nothing happens. That, uh, that it, there's no response at all. Somewhere between the brain and down there in those muscles that uh, would be able to hinge those joints and cause them to act and react. There had been a severance of that nerve and the, they never got the message and there was no response to it at all. Don't tell me tonight, friend, that a person that does not even have the Holy Ghost cannot receive a message that is sent from Almighty God. It comes back to them and deals with them and touches them, but it is their decision not to respond to it. 
I felt the presence of God and the Spirit of God long before I gave God my heart. I could tell when the Spirit of God moved in a congregation. I knew the knock of God upon the door of my soul. I knew when the presence of God moved like rushing waters through a congregation. I was well aware of the fact that conviction was there in, in that place. I knew it, friend. But somehow or another, I didn't, uh, didn't respond to it. And you feel it too. I felt it when I was a sinner, but I was dead. I didn't respond to it. I saw the dead, John said. Not only those that had drawn the breath of life for the last time, but those that had never lived spiritually, who had remained inept and inactive as far as the presence and the Spirit of God is concerned. Well, who were these dead? John saw them. Millions and millions of dead people. What a shock. Trillions, perhaps, of dead people. Cain was there. And all of those that had drowned in the flood, they were there. And John looked at them. There were sections of them, perhaps from different ages, that could be told by the way that they dressed. And uh, so, their actions and the way that they looked, perhaps could identify them as the particular time span that they lived in. And John saw them there. Millions of dead people. I saw the dead. I saw the dead. Who were they? John said the small were there. The people that lived back in the woods and, and no one hardly knew that they existed. When they died, only a handful attended their funeral. The great was there. Their names would be in the paper. It would be well known that they passed out of this world. They were there too. The smart sets were there. The jet sets were there. The folks that was able to afford a lot of, of spending and a lot of popularity, they were there. The people that danced in clamor and under beautiful situations, that danced with uh, great uh, 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 expenditures of clothing and preparation, and the setting was so gorgeous and so gay, they were there. And then those people that I saw dancing in a, uh, in a honky-tonk, just a low honky-tonk one night, because my car was broken down. I, I sat back there in that seat, and I was close enough to hear all the cursing and, and the filth come rolling, dumping out of the door of that honky-tonk. The music like I had never heard before, the, the terrible singing, the words of the songs, and things of this nature. They dance, too, in a different setting. They'll be there. The small will be there. The great will be there. The gamblers will be there. The ones that jet into Las Vegas and try their hands at the wheels in various other situations, they'll be there. I never saw such a situation until just a few months ago. I had uh, a five-hour layover in Las Vegas. And so while I was waiting, I had never seen gambling, uh, and uh, uh, at least not on that scale. I'd seen some one-armed bandits in uh, uh, restaurants and somewhere uh, before, but... Uh, now the uh, limousine was there, was taking them down to the motels and so on. Someone had told me that uh, situations were down there in the motels. I said, well, I have some time here. I'll just I'll go down. And I got in the limousine and drove down to one of these motels. I got out, 
I'd been in many motels, lots of hotels. I was used to the lobby, spacious, uh, uh, comfortable seats about. But when I opened those doors and stepped in there, jammed right up against the front entrance, there was just all types of gambling devices. On back it went, against the wall, crammed into the corners. I stood around with my mouth, I'm sure, agape. I looked into the crazed faces of people entirely, totally absorbed in a lust that I had never seen before. A lust that was just as real as a sexual lust, only this was a lust for money or or something else. It was wild. It was unearthly. I saw them shove their money in and pull the levers and and plunk their money down and and I stood around and I watched them. And uh, they cared nothing except what was going on at that time. The big time boys that can smack down a hundred dollar bill or a thousand dollars will be there. And then the loose the wizened faces of people and the dried up men that hang around horse tracks and race uh, situations, they'll be there. And there the card players will be. Some of them carry their cards in gold gilded boxes uh, inside of suits perhaps that cost $400. Others will be there that carry a pack of cards in the hip pocket of some dirty blue jeans. They'll be there. The small and the great will be there. The drinkers will be there. The man that carries his fifth in his hip pocket or in a wrinkled paper sack, he'll be there. And the fellows that balance delicately their highballs upon slim fingers uh, with their tuxedos on in high places of fashion, they will be there. The small and the great, they will be there. The man that curses upon the street corner and rolls out the vile, dirty words and uses my dear Jesus' name in vain will be there. The man that curses between our panel walls and in the high offices of government and state, he'll be there. The Bible says, Thou shalt not take the name of my Lord thy God in vain. Everybody that has broken the laws of this book that is open before me tonight will be there. My Bible teaches me that the man, the woman, the boy, the the soul that said it shall die. I saw the dead. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The social women will be there. Fine. Pretty dressers. Ladies that spend a lot on their hair and on their faces. But their morals are no good. They'll stand side by side with the women who ply their trade upon the streets of the larger cities. There's a far cry in the way that each of them look, but they'll be there. Here to tell you, my friend, that you can't take filth and put a pretty dress on it and make it clean. There's something about sin, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it is performed in the gutter or whether it is in the palace, it is still sin. It is still sin. The small will be there. Oh, yes, kick the young man, the small man, in the teeth. Drag him into court and try him. He didn't have enough money to get him a lawyer. We'll throw the book at him. But let the great politician, let the, let the moneyed man come in. 
He knows certain people. He is able to pull the strings. He is able to connive his way out of certain situations. But I'm here to tell you tonight about a court that is higher than civil law. The Bible tells us that the small and the great will be there. Yes, my friend, they will be there. They'll be there. That's not all that'll be there. The nice people will be there. Good people find folks that wish nothing more than to have themselves looked up to by young people as an ideal of the community and to be respected. Fellows that make speeches at graduations, situations, and all of that. But for him, the judgment somehow or another is a revealer of all people and a revealer of all things. Verily we see through a glass darkly here, but then face to face. Here we know in part, but then shall we know even as we also are known. And church members will be there, regardless of denomination. There'll be some Baptists there. There'll be Presbyterian. There'll be Catholic, and there'll be some Pentecostals there. There might be somebody that I'm preaching to tonight whose name is upon this church roll that will be there. Yes, friend, you'll be there. Somebody that I'm preaching to tonight, according to the law of average, will be there. I saw the dead. I saw the dead, small and great. Judas will be there. Demas who forsook Paul, having loved this present world. The rulers which were so vile and wicked and mean, who subjected people under an iron hand and under a hobnail rule. I saw the dead. And then, what about? They were all standing. Jesus said they stood. Or John said, I saw the dead. And when John saw them, you can read the text again tonight. He saw them standing. The high were standing and the low were standing. The big boys didn't grab the seats and leave the poor boys standing. Everybody stood. All of them. And there were millions of them. Millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dead people. And they were there. It is said that Hitler had a way of, when people came in, he'd make them stand. And uh, he would sit and he would wear them out. He liked to assert his authority because that uh, he would make them stand. He would not even offer them a seat, and he would make them stand. Here in that place, friend, where millions stand together. Certain nervousness about the whole situation. There's no talking, certainly no laughter. There is no uh, uh, great uh, a bit of conversation that rumbles in that great courtroom. There's none at all. The great omnipotent judge will not even have to call the court to order. It'll be in order. They will all be in order. And they'll be standing. Nothing heard except the rustle of bodies and the scraping of, of feet. People are nervous and, and shifting about. There is no talking. In the year of 19... Forty-six or forty-five. I was traveling for uh, a Bible school. I was representing it. I was out uh, uh, 17 days and back home three or four days and out 17 more days. My travels was all on Greyhound buses. And one 
day Sunday. After traveling all night, I got off the bus, bus in Shreveport. I was very sick. I had a severe case of flu. I was hot with fever. I couldn't hardly see my way where I was going. My throat was sore, and uh, I, I was very sick. I uh, made my way to a corner to catch uh, uh, a taxi to go out to a church with the hope that I would get there in time for the morning worship service because I was scheduled to speak that morning there. I had ridden all night. And uh, as I stood on that corner, there was a fire alarm that was turned in, and all of the lights froze on red. All traffic ceased except walking traffic. And... uh, I stood there and I listened. There was not a sound except the the clomping of human feet and their walking. And I just thought to myself, Dear Lord, this is eerie. This is the sound of human footfalls beating out directions, going towards certain destinies unknown to me and unnamed. All of them are facing eternity. And they are on their way to eternity. And John said, I saw the dead. Arrived in a certain sense. Terminated. There they were. The journey ended to that point. Standing in the judgment. Now many of these were fresh out of hell. Because this is the judgment that falls before the the wicked are cast into the lake of fire. Some of them have been in hell a long time. And the Bible said, death and hell gave up the dead which were in them. All of them went to the judgment, later to be cast into the lake of fire. What is the difference between hell and the lake of fire? It's the difference between the county courthouse and the penitentiary. And between the county courthouse and the penitentiary, there is the courtroom to which the, uh, the plaintiff goes and is given his trial. And so these men stand in the judgment for trial, many of them fresh out of hell. In hell they heard screams and they heard cries. Some of them for thousands of years heard people beg for water. And uh, the man in hell said, Father Abraham, Send Lazarus that he might dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. They heard things like that over and over again. But here these people stand in the judgment. There is not one inference that one of the many millions that are fresh out of hell ask Almighty God for one cup of water. They had been wanting water for years. Why didn't they ask him for water? Here it was that they had a chance to speak to him. But nobody asked for water. There is something so awesome about that arraignment. Something so terrible about the judge that sits upon the bench. That the very thought of one drop of water is forgotten. The might and the weight of that terrible hour overpowers even the thunder of hungry flames. They have forgotten that. They don't even remember the thousands of years in hell. There they stand in the judgment. 
no thought of water. This is the awful interval between the lake of fire and, and hell itself. It is a paralyzing period. And they stand, bone-weary, tired. Some of them have not lain upon a bed for 3,000 years. Some of them have not sat in a chair for a thousand years. Some of them have not had a meal to eat for five and six hundred years. There has been no rest. The Bible tells us that the smoke of their torment has gone up forever and forever. As I speak to you tonight, I am forecasting the plight of some of the people that you love. Some of the people that have sat at your table and eat the feet and the food that you cook. I'm telling tonight the future of some of your friends that have lived upon the same street that you have lived upon. Who have shopped in the same stores that you've shopped in. I'm here to tell you, friend, that the book that I preach from tonight is not a fairy tale. It is something that is absolute and real. People do die. They do. They really do. People really die. And when they die, all of them go somewhere. They all go somewhere. And they stand there, weary, bone weary. Lord, what if this is a dream? Courtroom of the sky. If I could wake up and find myself not here. Instead of the American consulate was dragged in in the Congo during the Civil War, threw those fellows out there in a courtyard and began methodically to trigger them down and shoot them down. He thought to himself, said, I'm going to die. And he thought to himself, is this actually a dream? Am I really going to die? I don't know just exactly what your friends or what you will think about. When you stand there, I saw the dead. They were there. I'm preaching to you. I really am. And the dead will have their memory. Said uh, the man in hell, Tybee's son, remember? He had it. He had not yet gone to the lake of fire. He is still in hell where Jesus saw him. He will be one of the ones that stands there that day. And maybe John saw him. I don't know whether John recognized him or knew him, but he was there. He was one of the ones that John saw. Then this man will go into the lake of fire that Jesus told us about. And to that position and time, there will be no end. People will have to have their memory in order to stand in the judgment and be appraised of what they did and so on. They'll, they'll be there. And, you know, hell is not a pleasant place. It's the place of meeting, of conclave, of reunion. What's ghastly reunions? What terrible confrontations? What horrible meetings of all places you don't want to meet anybody is in hell. But you meet them there. And you see them there. Children and parents will meet one another in hell. They will look into one another's faces and they'll recognize one another. Thinking about the boy that, that my preacher friend told me about. He was preaching a revival in Indiana and not very far from where he was staying. 
was a nice, well-equipped, great farm. This, uh, this farmer was a, a very successful man. He only had one child, and that one child was a boy. He taught that boy the science of farming. He had beautiful horses, and he had lovely cows, and everything about his farm was well kept. He taught the boy how to do things and to do them well. The boy was his partner, very close to one another, and they loved one another. On one cold winter night, when the ground was so solidly frozen and the temperature was around zero, for some reason, that great big commoditious barn caught a fire and burned. The boy, not wanting the prized horses inside to be burned, rushed into that flaming inferno and to take those horses out. And in the process, he himself caught a fire. They laid him upon the frozen ground outside. His skin was black and his clothes were burned from his body. His skin was cracking open in the fluid precious fluid of his body was running out. He knew that he didn't have long to live. No eyebrows, no eyelashes, no hair. His face was already puffing and swelling and his lips so thick he could hardly move them to talk. And his dad knelt beside him sobbing and crying. He was hurt, dreadfully hurt when he heard the painful words come from his dying son. Dad, you taught me how to rope. Dad, you taught me how to ride. Dad, you taught me how to farm. Dad, you taught me a lot of things. But Dad, you didn't teach me how to die. You didn't, you didn't teach me how to die. Reunions in hell are not joyful reunions. I can't understand for the life of me. Oh, dear God, I can't understand it. How it is that we can be munchalucked and callous and live just a protective pattern of life when just on the other side of that summer veil there is the choking shouts and the muffled screams of the town. Some of your relatives and some of your own friends that have already crossed over to the other side. Death, hell, and the grave. Very real. I wonder if one of my children will go to hell. And if one of them does go, which one would I rather it be? Dathus was a good girl. She was very courageous. She had a lot of spunk. What she did, she always did with all of her heart. If it was blowing the saxophone, she'd blow it loud. It was a song. She, she sung it with all of her might. Whatever she did, she did zestfully. She had a lot of courage. She still does. All mission work that she's in, she's never complained. If she went to hell, maybe she could stand it better than the other two. I don't know. Maybe it, was, maybe it would be better for Terry to go if one of them went. Terry never said that he hurt. Terry, when he was sick, he didn't complain. He had to be real sick to even stay in the bed. Terry never complained about anything. He kept a lot of stuff to himself and he managed it and figured it out. Maybe he could... Maybe he'd be better if he went. Nathaniel... No, I wouldn't want Nathaniel to go. I wouldn't want Terry to go. 
I wouldn't want to take that. But which one would I pick out? Which one of your friends or had you rather go? Which one of your children? If you're going to choose tonight, let's just think about it now. Let's pick out one of your children. If one of them's going to go to hell, which one would you rather go? While we're sitting here tonight, there is the booming thunder of hungry, devastating flames. Living, literal fire. In that place the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Oh, God. I saw the dead. I saw the dead. I don't like punishment. I, when I start to punish one of my children, came right down to it, and they needed it. I said, looks like that we're going to have to, uh, <clears throat> have to punish you. Uh, I got a sick feeling in my stomach. I did every time. I had knots in my stomach. I, I, I was shaking. I didn't ever enjoy it. I pushed myself into it. But it's just a child and that did need some correction. But for me to see adults scream and adults ride and adults stripped of dignity and honor and cast into the role of a whimpering, begging, shriveling child crying and begging for just a drop of water. The great and the small, strong men reduced to nothing, all straight gone, rolling, screaming, crying, begging. I saw the dead. I saw the dead. Davies in hell said, I've got five brothers at home. There's emotion in hell. There's love in hell. There's hate in hell. There's memory in hell. It is a living, burning, real place. Yes, it is. If we could just call the dead back tonight. If they could rise in their pallid, grave clothes, with their pale faces and the clammy death, stink of death upon them. If we could parade, say, a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred, let them come in at this door and go down the side, up this aisle and back here. Let them come. Let them reach out their fingers hungrily to you. Like a beggar is bought out of a starving institution to beg upon the streets for the inmates that are dying inside. His bony arms are stretched out pleadingly. There is pathos in his eyes. There is a plea upon his shrunken tongue. He knows what's inside that place. Just get the dead back tonight. They could come back from that place. They could come back in this auditorium. It shouldn't be that in itself. 
No, it must not be. Certainly it should not be just a place where people can come and attending in a worship service and so on. Certainly it should not be a place where people come and pay their tithe and thus furnishing me a good living and a fine car to drive. Certainly it must not be for that preacher, can't you see? That you are to pour your life out in this city. That you are to preach to this congregation. That you are to reach with care and with tears and concern. And some power other in this city that there should be born a church that cares. I saw the dead. I saw the dead. One night I stood. And it was a little after one o'clock in the morning. And there was a, a girl, age 17, upon a hospital bed. She was covered with clammy sweat. She was approaching death. She had taken more than a bottle of sleeping pills. Luckily, they had gotten to her in time, but her system had already absorbed a bunch of that stuff. Pumped her stomach out. Had done everything that they could, given her great stimulants and and uh, there was nothing else to do. Doctor stood there and he said, Well, I don't know whether she'll make it or not. He said, If she will live past two, uh, she'll make it. But uh, if she dies, she'll die somewhere between now and two o'clock. It was about 15 minutes after one. Next 45 minutes, I witnessed the struggle of death. She didn't seem to be unconscious, but yet she was unconscious. Her eyes were open. And she was talking. It was some kind of incoherent situation and, and all, but she didn't remember any of that. Uh, the sweat was on her. her. Her pulse rate and all of that and her pressure, all of that was mixed up. They were busy rubbing her and trying to stimulate her and working with her and trying to keep her alive. And I watched the <clears throat> hands up on my watch and they swept on around toward that fatal hour up to a clock. And on past that, and Judy was still alive. She was still alive. Two days after that, I came and sat beside her bed. I looked earnestly into her face. I talked to her about her soul and about eternity. And my question to her in time was this, Judy, did you know that you almost died the other night and stepped over into eternity? And if you'd have died, do you know that you would have gone to hell? That didn't shake her. She'd already thought about that. She said, I know that, Brother Pugh. Said, I saw the death angel come. She said, I saw him come. I was looking through this window here. And I saw him come. And he hovered outside the window for a while. And said, then he came and he stood up on the ledge. With his hands up on the face of this window, he, watched, he looked in and he watched me. And he was right here beside my bed. And I watched him. The death angel was there. Sure as I'm preaching to you tonight, people do die. And when they die, they all go somewhere. They all go somewhere. They really do. I was talking to a man one time. He was a smarty. Well, he says to me, if I do go to hell, said I'll have a lot of company. <laughs> and I told him a little story that Brother Conley told me. Brother Conley is a minister from Ireland. 
we talked about World War One and the buzz bombs, or two rather, and the buzz bombs and how that they struck Belfast and where he lived and the tremendous uh, air raids that they were subjected to and the great mammoth uh, shelters that the government had fixed and the subways that were arranged where the people could get into them. And I said, I guess that you folks spent most of your time in the shelters and the subways. No, he said, not after a while we didn't. I said, you mean when you, the sirens came off, you didn't go? He said, no, we didn't bother to go. How come? And this is what he said. Well, he said, just think about it. He said, those places get hit too. Now, if you're going to die, he said, do you want to die in mass? Or had you rather die with your family? Die alone. If you're going to suffer, finally leave this world, would you rather leave it with what's left of your house with the people that love you about you? Or would you want to be pinned up down underground or in some big place and the people are screaming and walking over you and trampling you in the face and things of this nature? He said, no. He said, if we wanted, we're going to die, we die alone. If I go to hell, I'll have a lot of company. He was right. For in that vast prison house of the damned, for in the corner of it, out the long reaches of it, there comes that sobbing, shrieking, sinking, moaning, crying, heart-rending screams of despair. It is a souls and suffering, dying, 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 and yet never dead. So the dead. People, please believe me. I'm preaching to you out of my heart. I do believe what I preach. I believe it because this book said so. People do die. And when they die, they all go somewhere. Praise God. The books were open and everybody's standing. Every idle word, things that they forgot... The anger, the lust, and so on. There was a murder yesterday in Houston. That man will probably be there. Now think about Hannah when she said, Talk no more exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come from thy mouth. For our God is a God of knowledge. By Him actions are weighed. The Bible said all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. What do the auditors do when they come into a bank? If it's like it ought to be, this is what happens. They arrive unannounced. They march in suddenly. They have a certain colored strong tape. They go behind immediately the cages and they tape every drawer shut. They freeze the situation as it is then. They impound the books. They take the operation as it is found immediately. And they begin to go through that thing and unravel it. And finally, they write their findings in permanent ink that cannot be eradicated on the books of that bank when they audit those books. There are debts that they write off that will not be collected. 
There is another fighting that is uh, of improbable debts. And then there are those that really should be gone after. But I'm here to tell you tonight, friend, that there is nothing taken off the books of Almighty God except that it is a race for the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm preaching tonight to people here that has never availed yourself of the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. They stood there and books were open. There's only one door to that room that leads out. And that door is the door to outer darkness. And through that door, the people go from the judgment. And Jesus himself said, tender, precious, sweet Jesus, that there should be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Flung into the night, like cardwood thrown into a wagon, the awful of time, the debris of human decisions, cast out into the black empty void forever, forever. Forever. I saw the dead. If what I preach tonight is not true, I'm a fool. It is in the light of this truth that I preach tonight that I do my preaching. It's not to play a game. It's too much Shall we stand? I wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. The Let's all sing it. course again.
One man, I was riding along out from Freona one Sunday. I was on my way to another place for revival. We just closed out in Freona. 1957. And, uh, or 47. It's a man preaching and also talking with another man. We were listening to him on the radio, and this was his statement. I pray, God, that I'll never know what it means for one soul to be eternally lost. And his friend questioned him what he meant by that. And he said, I know if I knew, really, what it meant for one soul to be eternally lost, that I'd be a raving maniac in five minutes. And I guess he would. I guess he would. It is a terrible thing, evidently, for a person to die lost without God. Somebody here tonight needs to come down here and give your heart to God. As we sing this chorus, would you come? Praise God. Somebody needs to come and pray. Here is an altar of prayer. You need to come and seek the Lord. We won't hold you long tonight. I don't know anything else that I could do. Sing it once more. tonight you need to come and pray tonight you need to come and pray tonight I wonder tonight before we all come and pray I'd like for you to close your eyes I wonder if you think of anybody tonight that is yet living that you don't want to go to hell. You want to see them saved before they die. If you think of anyone like that, would you raise your hand? Oh, Jesus, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Somehow or another in with this feeling in our heart in the light of this. I, I just wonder if we could bring that person pointedly and personally and call their name tonight in prayer. Let's all come up here and find us a place to pray and have a good prayer tonight. Let's all come. Let's everybody that's in this building come. Let's come and pray.
Praise God. 